This is Max Barry. You're listening to Booked. These guys will actually reenact scenes from the book for your listening pleasure. There's no length that they won't go to. Welcome to Book, where two guys tell you about the books that they're reading. I'm Olivia Snudden. And I'm Rob Olson. The book that we're reviewing tonight is The Night Circuits by Erin Morgenstern. Morgenstern is a writer and a multimedia artist who describes all her work as fairy tales in one way or another. She has a degree in theater from Smith College, an ever-growing collection of jewelry made from skeleton keys, and a cat on her lap. She lives in Massachusetts. The Night Circus is her first novel. Here's the synopsis from Aaron's website. The circus arrives without warning. No announcements precede it. It is simply there, when yesterday it was not. Within the black and white striped canvas tents is an utterly unique experience full of breathtaking amazements. It is called Le Cirque de Rêve, and it is only open at night. But behind the scenes, a fierce competition is underway. A duel between two young magicians, Celia and Marco, who have been trained since childhood expressly for this purpose by their mercurial instructors. Unbeknownst to them, this is a game in which only one can be left standing, and the circus is but the stage for a remarkable battle of imagination and will. Despite themselves, however, Celia and Marco tumble headfirst into love, a deep magical love that makes the lights flicker and the room grow warm whenever they so much as brush hands. True love or not, the game must play out, and the fates of everyone involved, from the cast of extraordinary circus performers to the patrons, hang in the balance, suspended as precariously as the daring acrobats overhead. The first observation I'm going to make is that um, we've always been very careful about what to say and what not to say on the show, and that synopsis right from her website reveals more than I thought I would be comfortable talking about on the show, so I feel a little bit looser with what we can talk about tonight. That's one of the reasons I've liked starting to read the synopsis, because very much along the lines of what you said, it does give us the boundaries. If the author is okay with giving that amount of information away, we should feel pretty comfortable with doing it, too. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to try and take it in a, in a different direction than I usually do when I start my notes. And this time I'm going to give kind of an overall feel of the book, which I, I feel like usually I jump into one specific thing or another that I notice about the book. But uh, it's... It's kind of a departure from what we typically do. It's definitely a fantasy book. Uh, and as we mentioned in the previous episode, it's also the first book that we've read that's written by a woman. So that's pretty exciting. But I think it does fantasy pretty well. Um, he, it builds a very unique world, even though it's based in our own world uh, of the, you know, but in the early 19th century. And, uh, no, I'm sorry, the late 19th century. So the world is built very well. It's very unique. It introduces a large cast of very interesting characters with uh, interesting different things they can do. Um, it's got your basic epic conflict, which I think is involved in any fantasy story you think about, and it has a love story that is, you know, from start to finish, one of the biggest parts of the book. Yeah, she definitely paints a very, very interesting and intriguing um, and even inviting world. Um, this book for me was all about aura. It was all about just the feel of the book itself, the the world that she created. And she just did it fantastically using this um, the circus, which uh, I didn't say it in the synopsis, but um, that 
was French, I believe, <laughs> for um, Circus of Dreams. And <laughs> she really br- builds this very dreamlike world that the circus exists in. And it's just the perfect backdrop for the rest of the story. Yeah. One of the parts of the book that I think really demonstrates that is, you know, there's all these tents with everything, the different things going on in each tent. And I can't remember specifically what the tent was for, but it's like you were climbing through clouds, basically. And, and it was like a cloud maze or something like that. And you could jump, you know, no matter how high climb you climbed or anything, you could jump down and, and bounce on these, you know, big soft balls. It felt like just like a cloud. And that, to me, was one of the scenes where I was like, this is just like someone would dream about. And, and so it really brought that whole Circus of Dreams thing kind of more meaning to me. Okay. Um, the synopsis also made it sound like it's this giantly involved love story. And, and although it is, it's really secondary. It's an integral part to the book, but you really don't feel that it's present all the time. And this book makes it to be as much about the surrounding cast of characters as it does as the two main characters, which is something that I found to be, uh, to, to be very endearing is that we weren't totally sucked into a love story. The story remained true to its roots and it was about the circus and the things that, you know, the power at that make it happen and the people involved and not so much, you know, the, the synopsis sounded overly sappy to me, which didn't translate well mm-hmm. as, you know, that's not what I got from the book as I was reading it. The synopsis isn't fair. Yeah. It's representation of the book. And I'm saying that in a good way because it sounded like this overwhelmingly, again, sappy love story. And it's really not. Yeah, it doesn't have one individual strength. I think everything that she tried to do shines through very well. So it's not fully reliant on this love story. And uh, yeah, she did a great job of developing all the different parts of it. Quite a few of the characters involved in the story have magical abilities, and uh, it's kind of interesting, at least from from our review show standpoint. It's the first one we've read where magic is is you know really prevalent in the story. So, Rob, what do you think? Do you think that it would be easier or harder to write your way into or out of something when you have you know unlimited resources? This character can do magic that can make this happen as part of your story. I think my initial reaction is that it's easier because, like you said, there's more options. But I think then the bar is raised with the expectation of like how fantastic it's got to be. So I guess it could be a blessing and a curse. I think that it gives you the opportunity, but then it really puts all the eyes on the way that you pull it off. So I don't know. I kind of well, that's and that's was my initial thought. That's why I wanted to get your take on. As I was reading it, I was like, nah, she can pretty much just write anything into this and it's just acceptable because of the scope of the story and I thought you know that makes it easy and I thought no that makes it really hard because you actually <laughs> have to build a whole world around it instead of play with with a preset of rules yeah for sure and one of the things that I thought about the magic in general is that the book kind of goes along I mean there's different ways that you can take adding magic into a book you can create some sort of spiritual reason for that magic exists you can create some mythical reason and i mean there's many ways you can go but this book goes more along the lines of magic is just kind of something that anybody can do uh it's almost like science that hasn't been discovered yet Um, and that's not what she says but that's i think the easiest way to explain it and um the cool the thing i thought was great about that is it allows her to just let it exist without going into all the details and the mechanics of it or, or the origin of it or anything like that, she can just focus on using it enough that, it, that it's a part of the book without it being too gratuitous. 
yeah, you make an you make an interesting point that, that kind of like magic is a is more of a backdrop for the story than the actual focus of it because of the way she treats it. That doesn't have to become a, a real central part. And that's one of the biggest things where I think people can get lost in something, and they're so amped up about a certain idea of of a book that they make it way more of a focus than it needs to be. I mean, she focuses on the story and the characters and what's important. So um, she, I'm so glad she didn't let herself get lost in the magic and talking too much about it. Yeah, it, it reminds me a little bit of, oh, and this was also blurbed on the cover, I believe. It was Audrey Neffinger. I'm never going to get the name right, but um, <laughs> the the author of the, the Time Traveler's Wife and when I you know mentioned it to people and stuff, and they go, eh, science fiction. And I go, yeah, you know, the guy travels through time, but and it's really not about time travel. And that's kind of how this was. It's like, yeah, there's a, there's magic, but eh, magic's really not the focus of the story. So yeah, yes, which is very refreshing and nice. So here's the other thing: it's about a circus, and you would expect that most, if not all, of the book takes place in the circus, and that's not really true. There's a lot of scenes that take place outside of the circus and the the lives of the characters that are outside of it are, you know, that there's a lot of stuff that develops outside of the circus. So it's, I don't want to say 50-50, but there is a split of things that happen on and off. But um, as the circus kind of evolves from its inception to what it ends up years and years later, a lot of the things that I thought were more beautiful or more beautifully described in the book were things that Celia and Marco had made I guess is kind of part of the contest as reactions to what the other people had made, but really it seemed like they were more making gifts for each other almost, if that makes sense. Um, it does. It, it does. I think what they were doing was more complimenting one another than, than competing is what it felt like. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where they were able to really build not just, you know, the, the, the circus becoming as grand as, you know, as it was. And I don't know how much we're going off. People can even follow what we're talking <laughs> about anymore, but you know, is is used as a tool to build their relationship too, since they're characters that didn't meet um, for a, a good portion of that book, even though they're the, you know, the central focus. Yeah, I guess that's thank you, <laughs> thank you for that kind of focusing my point into what I was thinking was that they turn a lot of concepts. I'm sorry, she turns a lot of concepts on their head. It's a competition that by the end of it looks nothing like a competition, and um, I thought that was one of the things that I liked more most about it. Yeah, and kind of to, to backstory some of that a little bit, the larger focus of the story is that there are these two magicians who have known each other for a long time and are very competitive, and they each mentor a young magician into this competition. And the, the rules of the competition are very undefined, and they just kind of, uh, Celia and Marco have to kind of muddle their way through it. As a matter of fact, um, they, they're not even told specifically who they're who their competitor is just that they need to partake in, in this circus endeavor and do the best they can to, to make it, uh, personally make it as big as, or as perfect as it can be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Again, that's another thing that she doesn't dwell in the details on. It's almost better because no one really knows what's going on. They're just kind of feeling their way through it in the dark. I think. I think you're right. And yeah, Rob mentioned it earlier, a, a great cast of supporting characters. There's, um, Widget and Poppet, who are uh, young twins in the circus. Um, there is uh, one of the only characters that doesn't have any type of magical powers. Um, Herr Thiessen. Thiessen? I don't know. So he is a, 
you know, a, a clockmaker who becomes um, a huge fan of the circus. So he's kind of our outside look at the circus throughout the, the course of the book. Um, and just a whole great kind of slightly odd supporting cast of characters. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I could talk about each each of the characters, you know, for, for a long, long time, a whole episode worth. Um, another thing she did really well was, was making each character unique and giving them their own voice and personality. One of the things that is used a lot, I mean, even just looking at the cover, and I'm totally changing topics, <laughs> is color. Uh, I think color, just as a basic theme of the book, is very central. And I wrote a ton of notes about color, which I probably won't go over all of them, but there's a, the circus, in its inception, they wanted it to be all black and white, which, to me... It, it, there's so many things that you can pull from that. And then w when Livius was describing these characters and everything, for some reason I thought about how high society a lot of the circus felt. Um, there's definitely some rich people that are backing the circus when it's first conceived. Um, and they have these, you know, very exclusive and lavish parties and everything. And I don't know what it is about the way that she describes the car the circus. Um, you know, maybe part of it has to do with the fact that it only happens from when the sun goes down until when the sun comes up. I mean, there's just this feeling of exclusivity throughout and, um, the way that everything is so elegantly designed, I guess, makes it feel very high society and, you know, things that people would, would aspire to be or to be around. Yeah, definitely. The, the black and white, um, theme of the circus I found very interesting because black and white, um, a classy, as you kind of mentioned, high society, but also can be kind of disorienting if there's enough of it. So I thought that was a great element to kind of further, you know, I say this. So the circus, a lot of the mystery and allure of the circus comes from it's powered by magic. So part of the people who are involved who or people who are involved who have magical abilities is to use those magical abilities, but then to mask them as clever. Uh, as clever trickery, basically. Mm -hmm. And to me, the black and white almost served as to be a little more disorienting um, to people to kind of mask the fact that it's magic that's, uh, that's you know, really involved. To make it seem magical, but still for people to think it's just very, very cleverly concocted illusions. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. And um, one of the things I liked about color is, again, it's kind of turning a thought on but at least for me, who admittedly have never been to a circus, but when I think of circuses, I think of lots and lots of bright, bright colors, tons of different colors and stuff like that. And you're taking that and you're basically turning it into two colors and, you know, the occasional gray or silver or whatever, but for the most part, a very uniformly colored uh, experience as opposed to what I always imagine would just be, uh, you know, a scene that's bursting with colors that's almost like overwhelming. Yeah, it's it's in the circus. You know, we didn't say this before, but it's not um, elephants and clowns. It's it's more that Cirque du Soleil feel. Yeah. Only again, minus the color, because now that I said that, I think yeah, Cirque du Soleil is really <laughs> colored too. So yeah. But what you're saying it's, is like acrobats, contortionists, you know, people performing extraordinary feats and stuff like that. Yeah, I, fire eaters and and you know and, and that type of thing and not that I mean there's a lion tamer but it, it just doesn't have the it's not Ringling Brothers Barnum and Bailey it's definitely far more Cirque du Soleil if Cirque du Soleil was around in the fifties when there wasn't color <laughs> and another and 
without at the risk of beating the whole color conversation to death. Uh, another thing I thought about was that uh, another weird kind of juxtaposition is that uh, the people that are going to attend the circus end up being the ones that are colorful, and there's a very distinct line between you can tell who's a part of the circus and who's attending the circus or visiting the circus by the way they look. You know, if there's any color involved, if they're not black and white and very uniformly looking, there's that distinction. So I, I don't know. There was I could I could dig into the psychology of it forever, but um, the use of color in general I think was just very very well done, and it anchors you in in your thoughts about the circus and stuff that's outside of the circus. As much as we alluded to the fact that we liked that this wasn't bogged down in details, there are a lot of details, and they're all very supportive of the story. And it's more things like color and circus patrons more than the circus itself, and and some different looks at things, and it, it just was put together very very well. One more thing I'll add is that um, if you decide to pick this up, uh, all of the chapters are date stamped. Pay attention to the date stamps because the story doesn't necessarily move linearly throughout. There's a story that starts after the circus's inception and those two stories join themselves together later on. But threw me off a little bit because I think (laughs) I read through the first or second part of that nonlinear portion and and couldn't figure out, you know, couldn't make the logical loop that it wasn't linear. It was throwing off my story reading a bit. Yeah, the dates are important. And another observation that I had that I thought was really great um, and something that I think that is a trap that people can fall into when they're writing books of this nature is that not everything that happens is a function of fate or destiny or or anything like that. Um, One of the more major roles in the book, which I'm not going to mention specifically, ends up happening or, you know, that character ends up being important more or less because they were at the right place at the right time. Um, it was just, it could have been anybody. It just happened to be that person. And so, especially considering how planned out and preconceived this whole contest between the two main characters was, I like the fact that, that not everything followed that mold of, of being part of a destiny or anything like that. Yeah. I mean, let's, let's call it what it is. There isn't a whole lot not to like about this book. (laughs) It, It, well, it's, you know, and, we're going to talk a little bit about you know some of the stuff outside of the book um, after we after we kind of wrap it up. But this is a really well written book with a lot of facets that work very very well together, and we could go on and on. There's a whole other group of of, uh, of circus goers that isn't necessarily a really important part of the story, but is a really really nice touch. Again, kind of adding that, giving you a little bit more of a spectator feel. So you're getting this outside look at the circus. I mean, fantastically done. Um, the quirky characters that are not the central part of the story, terrifically done. Ambiance, fantastic. I mean, there's so much good stuff here. My fear is that it's going to be uh, swept under the rug because it's uh, it's currently on the bestseller list, I believe, and that it's going to be discredited for being in the you know top ten sellers because it couldn't possibly be you know literal literarily written very well and i don't think that's the case i mean she really put together a really really solid story with like i said not a lot to complain about yeah Uh, the only thing that and again this is probably just i keep trying to preface this because i don't think it's a bad thing it's it's more of a personal thing um 
there was a lot of ending in the book. Uh, it seemed like there was, as I was reading and I knew I was coming to the end, I was at 98%, 99%. It seemed like there was a few points where I was like, oh, this is a really good ending. And then something more would happen. But that being said, it, the ending was great. It was, it was perfect. It fit well. There was nothing wrong with it. I just like, I kept finding really good points for the book to end <laughs> and it just didn't end yet. I, I'm, I don't think it was just you. I felt the same way. It reminded me of watching, um, the, the, the third movie in the Lord of the Rings trilogy where I was like, <laughs> Hey, this was pretty good. It's over. And then it went on for another 40 minutes. This didn't feel that way that I thought was just getting really, really boring, but you're right. There were some good stopping off points and it's in my mind. It's almost like the author was like, I'm not really sure how to end this. Cause I have this part and I have this part and I have this part. And then someone said, Hey, they're all good. Just put them all on there. Just tack on three extra chapters, you know, yeah. like, because if you can't pick the one that you want to finish on, then add them all in. And I, I, again, you're right. I, it was fine, but yeah, it did feel like it went on. Well, as we were talking about this, I just thought I did read, there's a Wall Street Journal article that we'll probably mention a little bit later on, um, that the way that this originally was written, at least in its first draft or one of the early drafts, was not as a, you know one cohesive story, but it was basically a bunch of different stories. And so I have to imagine if it was conceived that way, she might have wanted you know, legitimate endings for multiple stories. And then that's kind of how this, the book ends out is there's a good ending for this part and there's a good ending for this part. And she might've just wanted to do justice to all of it because it all mattered to her that much. Yeah. You know what? I didn't, I didn't, well, no, I didn't read the article. I'm, I'm thinking about it as you're saying it. And yeah, I mean, that makes, that makes sense. I'm thinking back to the, you know, we can refer to as the three or four endings and yeah, I can see where that, where, where your theory on that is correct. Mm-hmm. It's speculation, but yeah. Yeah, you know, Aaron, if you're listening, <laughs> yeah, let us know. Drop if, us a line. Yeah. <laughs> give us a call. Okay, and one more thing I wanted to say before we kind of wind down the notes that we had about the book, I just want to reiterate what Livia said. You know, I can't think of anything that's wrong with this book, and it's just really, really wonderfully done. I think that we probably didn't do justice to all the good things that are in there, and if we tried to, it probably would be like like a three hour episode. So if I missed anything that was important, it's just cause there's so much good stuff. Very cool. Um, that sounded very wrap up ish. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah. Let's go ahead and let's go ahead and do our wrap up and then we can do quotes after that. All right. Sounds good. I mean, it's as simple as this. My, I gave it a rating of four and a half stars, the elusive five stars. It didn't get quite there, but four and a half because it's just a fantastic book. I, I have nothing bad to say about it. I really enjoyed it the whole time, start to finish. And she did a great job of, I, of every element that I could possibly think of. Great book. I am also going to go four and a half stars. Um, I'm going to give a little bit of explanation on, on my lacking the half star. I said earlier that it wasn't, you know, really romance heavy, uh, you know, that it was it was done pretty lightly. I almost could have used a little more of that and a little more buy-in to the relationship. So I'm not saying it was bad. I'm saying that the, I'm taking away half a star because I didn't fall in love with, with Marco and Celia, <laughs> which is what should happen when you're, when you're reading a really good book. That's, you know, that's a love story. So that's where I'm at. I think she did it well. So I don't think anybody can, you know, can't be classified as a romance novel and be nixed off people's reading lists for that. But I think it could have been a little, a little more there. I kind of waxed eloquent, so that sounds like a really bad way to leave it off. I, there, a few <laughs> minutes ago, I got so uh, 
Yeah, so into what we were talking about, I kind of did my wrap up. Yeah, there's nothing not to like. Everything in this book is done exceptionally well. So um, four and a half stars, great book. We're going to be uh, seeing a lot more of, of this young lady, I'm certain. You know what? To hell with it. I'm bumping up to five because I just realized this is her first book she ever wrote. And um, I think that that gets an extra half a star from me just for that reason. Wow, look at you. There you go, just giving away stars like they're free. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what that means. At any rate, all right, so there we go. We have a, we have a revision, a four-and-a-half and a, a five-star review for Aaron Morgenstern's The Night Circus. Really great stuff. Yeah, for sure. You want to do some quotes? Do you have quotes? Um, I don't have quotes. What I have is um, there are kind of these story interrupts, and she uses this... Um, this tool, so to speak, to separate some different things that go on in the story. So at any rate, there's probably seven, maybe eight of these throughout the, the story. And they're, you know, they have this, they have their own chapter title and they're very, very short, you know, one to three pages. And what she does is she puts you in the circus as an attendee, as a, as a patron. So what I'm going to do, and hopefully this isn't too long winded, I'm going to read one of these sections. I didn't do any quotes because quite honestly, no one, you know, sentence jumped out at me, but the ambiance of this book all around was still fantastic. So even though I don't think she crammed 10 words together that I really, really felt strongly about, I mean, it was just strongly written throughout. So without further ado, um, episode two of Booked Theater, uh, whereby we read something that's way too long to actually read on the show. This is, uh, the chapter is called Darkness and Stars. With your ticket in hand, you follow a continuous line of patrons into the circus, watching the rhythmic motion of the black and white clock as you wait. Beyond the ticket booth, the only way forward is through a heavy striped curtain. One by one, each person passes through it, vanishing from sight. When it's your turn, you pull back the fabric and step forward, only to be engulfed by darkness as the curtain closes again. It takes your eyes a few minutes to adjust, and then tiny dots of light begin to appear like stars, lining the dark walls in front of you. And while moments before you were so close to your fellow circus goers that you could have touched them, now you are alone as you feel your way tentatively forward through a maze-like tunnel. The tunnel twists and turns, the tiny lights providing the only illumination. You have no way of discerning how far you have gone or which direction you are moving in. Finally, you reach another curtain. Fabric that feels as soft as velvet beneath your hands parts easily when you touch it. The light on the other side is blinding. So we'll call that a quote from, uh, from me. And this may be the only time I read more than Rob does during the quote section. <laughs> I do have triple the amount of quotes, but it's probably collectively a third of the amount of words. I actually specifically looked for quotes that were shorter because I think I, I tend to get caught up in, in like the whole scene and everything when really just like a handful of words are, are what I'm trying to get to the, the listener. So I tried to get really narrowed down and you just blew it away by reading essentially a whole chapter <laughs> well and, and that's what i was saying and I, I think maybe you know you had a harder time drilling down because that's what it was i don't think there was a grouping of words that was really really strong but passages like that were just really really wonderful so mm -hmm. well i'm going to kick it off with um my biggest quote so that we can kind of low slowly wind down this first quote it's uh, Prospero, who is um, the mentor of Celia and who has obligated her into this competition, basically. 
and he's talking to Alexander, who is his rival, uh, and they're talking about how Prospero does his magic in public as if he's a basic smoke-and-mirrors type of magician, um, and he's justifying his use of that, and he's comparing himself to these other magicians. They are a bunch of fish covered in feathers, trying to convince the public they can fly, and I am simply a bird in their midst. The audience cannot tell the difference beyond knowing that I am better at it. The second one, really short, Bailey, one of the characters, ends up being pretty big later on in the book. This is describing how he feels having left the circus for the first time. So he went to the circus, fell in love with it, and now he's back to his normal life. Even the ground beneath his feet feels unsatisfying to his boots. And that anthropomorphization of the boots, I thought, really brought it, brought it home. And I have one more. This third quote takes place during the first meeting of Marco and Celia. It's a situation where they've kind of been around each other and everything, but this is their first actual interaction. I believe you have my umbrella, he says, almost out of breath, but wearing a grin that has too much wolf in it to be properly sheepish. So it's turns of words like that you find all throughout the book. Very, very clever, and, and just really the best way to express what she was trying to do. I, I thought that was probably the one that impressed me the most. I keep going back to what you're saying about this being her first book, and I, I know that, and we talked about it before we started the show, and, and yeah, it was really goddamn good. So, <laughs> I mean, just, I don't know what else to say about it. Yeah, it's it's just throughout the book. Every moment has it has a weight to it, I guess is the best way I could say it, and it's just, it seems like she... He paid attention even the, the very littlest, smallest, most insignificant moment as much as she did to a moment that would, you know, change the entire course of the book. It, it, the whole book is like this. All right. Normally, this is where we would uh, go ahead and tell you what else you could be reading, should be reading, reading of instead of uh, this book. So um, I'm going to go ahead and kick this off uh, and kind of generalize a little bit. But, yeah, we've got nothing this week. This is a book that anybody can enjoy. There's there's no part of it that's really overt. Like eh, I don't I don't like stories of magic. There's not enough magic to make it distasteful. There's not enough romance to make it distasteful. As somebody who doesn't you know read you know or doesn't like Harlequin type books, uh, really well written. I this is what you should be reading. I don't we don't even I don't even have anything to compare it to. Yeah, I had the same problem. Um, I actually went. <laughs> I went to my personal Goodreads account and I looked at every book that I'd rated in the past to see if there was anything of a similar vein that I could suggest and I couldn't really find anything. But yeah, um, the other thing that I like to think about is who else would like this book? Some people might not like certain books. And just like Livia said, I can't think of anybody who I wouldn't recommend this to. You know, my mom, my grandmother, you know, a, you know, a teenage kid. It's got a very universal appeal to it and it's not anything that people wouldn't understand it it it, it could apply to anybody yeah and and family friendly too i know a lot of times we talk about having to be you know strong of stomach to, to read some of the things we reviewed yeah it's totally friendly family i there's uh um, there's one intimate scene in the whole book and it's done in such a way that it could certainly be on uh you know daytime television yeah it's disney 
<laughs> yeah, I mean it's 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 done very cleanly and yes, definitely um accessible to anybody who who wants to read a good a good fantasy story. You know what it made me want though? It made me want to watch The Prestige again. Well, and I was going to say, you know, you'd mentioned that and um yeah, maybe not something to read, but yeah, it did have that that kind of feel to it. Yeah, for sure. What was the other movie that came out that was just like The Prestige that came out at the same time that was pretty good too? The Illusionist, I think, but I didn't watch yeah, that. Yeah, The Illusionist. Yeah, very, well, watch it. If you like The Prestige, I can't imagine you wouldn't like The Illusionist. So. Okay, so that's that. Everyone should read this book. Yeah, great book. It's, I Yeah, of the, I think, 19 or so books that we've reviewed by now, I it's one of my most highly recommended. I agree with you. All right, so as of late, you may have noticed we're talking a lot about books outside of um, just the story. So there's been a lot of hype around this book, so there's some things that are worth mentioning um, here. Uh, first off, a book trailer. There's a book trailer for it. Thoughts, Rob? Um, I don't know. It's not good. It's not bad. It, it does what it's supposed to do. It, it teases what the book's about, talks about a couple of the main themes, in it, and it, it's very much in the style of the book and the way that she paints the picture of the carnival and everything. So, uh, basic teaser. It, it was fine. I didn't, I didn't think it was mind blowingly good or anything, but it was fine. Yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to disagree a little bit. I saw this trailer both before I read the book and it was enough to kind of pique my interest in it. Um, and I saw it afterwards and I do have to say, I thought it, it kept itself very, very true to the entire, um, feel of the book. Um, they kind of rolled out one line at a time over the course of, I think the trailer's just under a minute, um, that gave you kind of a description of what you were in for as far as the circus portion of the book goes. Um, some good visual imagery there. There's a scene where it's snow and coming down while they're writing on the screen, and it looks like it's in 3D, like it's coming down or out of the screen at you a little bit. I mean, it was just done very, very well. Um, you know, all in all, we've seen some really, really garbagey book trailers, and this is certainly not one of them. So it's not quite Machine Man or Warmed and Bound, but it's uh, it's up there. That's fair. I'll I'll agree with you on that. You turn me around. I love the I love the trailer. There you go. <laughs> the book now has five and a half stars. Five and a half. He loves the trailer. Okay, speaking about hype around a book. Uh, Night Circus just came out. It was it was released September thirteenth by Doubleday, and I'm looking on the Amazon page right now for it. It's number nine in books, which I think is a pretty good number. <laughs> number one in romance historical, which I don't really understand that category. Number two, <laughs> it's kind of a weird. <laughs> number two in literature and fiction, genre fiction, metaphysical, and number three in science fiction fantasy fantasy category so it's hitting the top of a lot a lot of lists just back to that historic romance historic <laughs> section i'm pretty sure you and i could write a book and be number two right <laughs> behind this because i can't imagine how many books are in that in that actual list so not not a swarm of authors dropping into that romance historical category uh, you know maybe there isn't maybe there isn't i mean it's probably like number two is uh you know gone with the wind <laughs> you know, I, yeah I, I, yeah, I mean, yeah, anything that takes place, I guess, in the past that's a romance could qualify for that. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know how it – I'm not going to click on it, though. <laughs> you just just the things, the suggestions that would pop up once you click on that category. Um, and then other really quickly about it um, on the Amazon page, 
there's 131 reviews of those 75 or five stars so I think that's a pretty that's a pretty big number it's hitting pretty hard to begin with and already even though the book just came out summit entertainment bought the the rights to it and are pushing it really really hard to the twilight crowd and, and I think they really want to make it the next big sensation with the young adult uh, audience yeah it brings up an interesting point i uh before we started reading it you had mentioned that you had seen some stuff about it being you know the next harry potter and i did the air quotes not that anyone could see it but now <laughs> i'm telling you so you can just picture me doing the air quotes Boy, you know, I mean, everybody wants to be the next Twilight. I don't care who you are, if, even if you hate Twilight. That kind of success is hard to not want. Man, I don't see the comparisons. Uh, yeah, there's magic, like there was in Harry Potter. And yeah, there's like this kind of star-crossed romance, like Twilight. Still, I don't see comparing those two at all. I mean, that's, you know, it, it, by those standards, you could, you know, you could call anything the next Harry Potter. I, I just don't see it in this book. I agree. Um I also saw from several different sources the whole next Harry Potter thing, next Twilight thing, and and I'm left. The only thing I can think of is that they're saying the next sensation, because yeah, the, those kind of parallels are are completely off. There's not enough from actual story content to like draw between the two. And I wonder what Erin Morgenstern herself thinks about it. Like, I mean, she wrote a book that I think is very unique and great. And I'd really like to see what she feels about those comparisons and what she thinks about where it stands in that arena. I don't know. Again, you know, we're speculating a little bit on things, but I think Aaron Morgenstern is counting um, fat cash right now. <laughs> and um, quite honestly, a lot of this goes back to it. She's not a veteran writer. She's not, you know, uh, a, a Stephen King who's going, yeah, I don't want to be com compared with Stephanie Meyer. She's someone who right now her career just broke right wide open. Um, so I would have to imagine she's probably pretty flattered and pretty excited. Just a guess. Yeah, yeah it's interesting. But uh, if if what I'm reading has... You know, if if there's any truth to what I'm reading, expect to see a lot of hype and a lot of talk about the Night Circus as as time goes by, because it seems like, at the very least, the publisher is putting a lot of weight and a lot of resources behind making this the next big thing. Yeah, and then you know what? And now that you said that, and I know I kind of mentioned it when we were talking earlier, but. Yeah, how much of that is the publisher going, hey, let's call it the next Twilight in hopes that people will look at it because they think it'll be big and it'll become the next Twilight. So how much of that is kind of, you know, self-prophecy? Manufactured. I'm sure a lot of it is. But it's a great book. So, I mean, maybe that's the maybe that's the winning combination. You have a very well-written book that has the full enthusiasm of a big publishing house behind it. And, hey, more more power to her. It's a great book, and I think she deserves all the attention she can get. And and that book has to have that mass uh, appeal to it. You know, Harry mm -hmm. Potter. Um, what originally was you know was dubbed as children's a children's book that you know many many adults like. The same thing with Twilight. You know, you can say it's for fourteen year old girls all you want. A lot of adults read that book. And mm -hmm. again, what do we say about this one? Mass appeal, family book. Anybody can read it. You can buy a copy and pass around to every member of the family. You know, so I guess that would be the third part of that. Not just a really well written book, but that there has to be the appeal to not just one niche audience. Mm 
Mm-hmm. It has to appeal to a very wide array of people, and then that's the formula for success, apparently. On a completely unrelated matter, did I tell you about the new book I'm writing? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that was so cheap. <laughs> yeah, was, yeah, that was, I, I'm, thinking, I'm thinking, no, you didn't. I'm really <laughs> interested to hear about this. That's where oh. started turning. Um, so I think uh, I think we've done enough on uh, on the night circus there. Yeah, a very glowing recommendation for people to go read that. Yep, and remember, we tell you what to read. We do. Oh, oh, and uh, before we move off of night circus for finally and move on to the other stuff, I wanted to mention um, the the music that you're going to hear at the end of the episode was actually something that was volunteered. A friend of ours, Andy. Is a, is a composer of sorts, and he had written a piece that was kind of circusy. And when he heard that we were doing uh, the Night Circus, he asked if we wanted to use it, and I listened to it, and it's fantastic. So thanks, Andy, for giving us this little bit of music that you're going to hear at the end. I'm going to do the whole piece. I think it's about just under two minutes. Everybody should listen to it because I think it's just great. Andy, absolutely. Thank you very much. I liked it a lot, and the only reason it's not at the top of the show is it would lead to people making jokes about the couple of clowns that are on this show, and I just can't take it. My <laughs> fragile, my, my delicate ego can't handle that. Okay, so yeah, big thanks to Andy for uh, for offering to let us use this piece that he wrote, and uh, he sent it to me so last minute, I didn't get a chance to ask him how to properly uh, credit him, and so when we put the post together, I'll make sure to give uh, a website or whatever type of links that he wants to the stuff that he does because he's very, very creative and very interesting with his music. So earlier we uh, we crowdsourced questions um, once again, which is something we actually have a lot of fun doing. Um, the participation was a little a little lighter than we would have liked to have seen, but I don't know if that was a time constraint thing that we didn't really get it up as early as uh, we probably should have. So we asked for listener questions either directly relating to the story or just in general. And um, our good friend and former um, guest host, uh, Dan Hines, uh, posted on our Facebook page a question. Is there a must-read book coming out in the near future that you feel you can't miss so uh we'll let rob kick off with his answers there's something coming up that uh you just can't miss rob well i don't know how must read it is for the general public um this is kind of one of my guilty pleasures but it's one that i feel i can't miss so i'm going to mention it the new dexter book double dexter is coming out uh in just a few weeks i think it's in the middle of october or so I've read the first five books in the series, and this is the sixth one. So uh, I'm definitely going to do my best to read that uh, as soon as I can. Hey, uh, a Dexter-related question that isn't in my notes, but just because you said it's called Double Dexter, is there, what is, man, on Facebook I keep seeing something in the right-hand side there that is a slice of Dexter or something. Does that mean anything to you? The previous book's called Dexter is Delicious. But a slice of Dexter, no, I have no idea what that means. Hmm. If only we had a tool where we could look these things up. I'm pretty hmm. sure that's what it is. I just I expected that to be, um, oh, there we go. Dexter, Slice of Life, a Facebook game for your inner serial killer. That would explain it. <laughs> there it is. Nothing like the book that I'm going to read. <laughs> yeah. No, and that's why when you said Double Dexter, I was very confused because I had seen this advertisement a lot and I kept expecting expected you to say that was the name of the book and that's what kind of threw me off there a little bit <laughs> let's see what do i have that's must read chuck polinick damned comes out uh, in about a month so a little less than a month and uh i uh 
read all of his books except for one, and I've only gotten ha- I've gotten halfway through Rant twice and couldn't do it. But um, I know a lot of fans fell off the the Polonic bandwagon in in some of his most recent books. Um, I have not. I actually really liked Pygmy a lot. Um, so I'm kind of looking forward to this. It's uh, it's about an 11 year old uh, girl who's overweight who overdoses on marijuana and ends up in a, in hell. And uh, <laughs> my understanding of it is it's going to kind of be Breakfast Club in hell. So I'm kind of looking forward to that. And perfectly ties into an October theme of Halloweenish kind of things. Oh yeah! If only we were smart enough to do something like that. Yeah, yeah. Some sort of a Booktober type thing. Oh, and for anybody who's keeping track, uh, the new James Patterson book came out this week. No joke. Um, wait, wait. Do you mean that one that we talked about before? Kill me if you can. Um, no, this one is uh, another in another installment in the Daniel X series. So that's two in the last like three weeks. I believe that's correct. Mm, wow, good for Patterson. Although I also looked that one up on Amazon and it was ranked like 160th. It's it's a young adult series about a I think it's about a alien teenager that looks like us. I'm not sure. So I don't think it quite has the mass appeal. Um, it's part of his uh, contract. He uh, he signed to co-author six young adult books. So book mill milling them out. Oh, it right. sounds so cynical. That's all right, man. It's hard to crank out $78 million worth of stuff co-authored by other people. It's not easy. Yeah. I'm having a lot of trouble with this. Exactly. That's because you like pick me as your co-author and I don't write. So. Damn it. See? These formulas. I'm yeah. no good at book math. Yeah. Right. It's, it, listen, we, listen, we have the schematic down. We're just, we're, we're missing parts. So. All right. Okay. Uh, you're about ready to wrap up this episode. We can talk about the next book we're going we're gonna to do. Yeah, let's do that. All right. The next book that we're going to be reading is a book called Plugged by Owen Culfer. You might know him. He's the author of the Artemis Fowl series, which is a young adult series of books. He also authored the sixth Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy series book uh, after Douglas Adam had passed away. He picked up the mantle and came out with the sixth book in that series. So... This book is a bit of a departure from what he's known for. Uh, it's more of a noirish kind of uh, book that's definitely geared toward adults. So I'll be interested to see how this sizes up to uh, the other stuff he's put up. Well, I will tell you because I jumped ahead and uh, started reading next week's book. <laughs> uh, I'm only like 15% in. Um, yeah, it looks like it's going to be a little actiony, and it is uh, definitely chuckle-worthy in parts. <laughs> Okay, so, and one of the things we did last episode, which I think I'd like to try a little bit more, is um, starting conversations on Facebook um, that, that originated on the episode. Now, this Owen Culfer has a bit of notoriety to him. I personally haven't read any of the Artemis Fowl series of books. I had intended to, I just haven't had time. So if anybody that's listening has read any of the earlier stuff, and maybe read The Hitchhiker's Guide as well, or or heard about this book or haven't, let's talk about it on Facebook. I'm going to start a quick conversation about uh, his transition to writing some more adult-oriented stuff. And, uh, and yeah, I'd like to hear what you guys have to, have to say about that. Very cool. You know what I have to say about it? Absolutely nothing, because Artemis Fowl kind of sort of rang a little bit of a bell. Like, it may have sounded familiar. No clue what it is. Oh, man. Big sensation. Big sensation. Yeah, yeah. 
but yeah, definitely. If you have any input, um, go ahead and share on Facebook. Um, if you're not on Facebook for some reason, um, you can also hit us up on Twitter at Booked Podcast. Um, if you need the Facebook address, what's wrong with you? Um, why haven't you been there already? It's facebook.com slash booked podcast. Or just drop us a line at bookedpodcast at gmail.com. Okay. And how to listen to us if you're stuck on our website listening to our, our, our episodes and you're thinking there's got to be a better way. There's got to be a way to get this mobile. Uh, we are available on iTunes. We are on the Zune network, which, again, not a peep from anybody who's ever used it. So uh, I think we're on the Zune network. <laughs> oh, no, we are. I check. We're on there. Uh, and then you can also get us. Livius, do you want to talk about our favorite way for people to listen to uh, to our episodes? Um, sure. You can also listen on Stitcher. Stitcher, smart radio for your phone. I don't know. At any rate, listen to Stitcher, download it. They just did a, a kind of overhaul, which is slightly annoying because um, I know all my apps are in alphabetical order, but the ones I use most frequently I recognize by icon. So now as I'm scrolling through my uh, my menu of programs, I'm having trouble identifying Stitcher. But they made some improvements. If you have an iPhone, there's a bookmark feature that sounds so cool that's apparently not available on Android. But yeah, absolutely a great way to listen. Um, we know a lot of you listen on Stitcher because we do see some. <laughs> we do get some some statistics from them. But yeah, I mean, just dead simple way to get it. That's um, the way I listen to my own podcast. And it's on iOS, WebOS, Android, BlackBerry. Uh, future devices that haven't been invented yet. They're really yeah, all Motorola, over. Motorola flip phone. <laughs> I think it works on those rotary phones that have like four different lines you got to plug into the wall. Yep. It's on and that. then if you uh, if you just get some tin foil and chew on it, you'll also get our podcast. That's right. Yeah, uh, Stitcher. So thanks, Stitcher. <laughs> all right, that'll just about wrap it up for uh, this episode of Booked. I'm Rob Olson, and I'm Livia Snedden. Keep reading. <laughs>